0: Imagine, if you will, that it's April 1919. It's the beginning of the real age of adventure in aviation and journalists from around the world are flocking to Limerick to report on a new transatlantic air race that was due to begin from there and then end in North America. But the visiting journalists who have come from around the world end up not covering that race. They end up instead covering one of the most dramatic episodes of Revolutionary Ireland, the collapse of the 12-day republic called the Limerick Soviet, which, as you can imagine, is... Is perfect material for Donald Fowler Yes, forget forget,
1: forget the People's Republic of Cork, which <laughs> yeah. was never formally
0: established. The Limerick <laughs> Soviet did dare to exist for or, twelve days, or the Republic of Connacht Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, you just pulling it out of your backside, lads. Uh, this was a total accidental news story, the Limerick Soviet, and it ended up on the front page of the New York Times. It's quite amazing, and 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 you notice in your line
1: of work, you know, sometimes in the media, it's just about being in the right place uh, at oh, the totally. right at the right totally. time. And I don't think there's any better example of this in an Irish context than than the story of the, the so-called uh, Limerick Soviet. and You know, maybe no incident of Irish protest has ever been as well documented by the, the, the foreign press as the events of a century ago in the week that's ahead of us this mm-hmm. all began. And I mean, they flooded into Limerick from near and far to report on this brilliant pioneering flight across the Atlantic. Major C.P. Ward was going to win £10,000 and of all people... The prize money was sponsored by the Daily Mail. And what they get instead is, you know, the Daily Mail's nightmare. This city <laughs> that has fallen under the control uh, of its own workers. And this this great story, it's a real tussle, you know, between workers, Sinn Féin, the clergy. And people might be surprised where these various factions fell mm. uh, in this story. Sometimes the latter, the church, were more supportive of events in Limerick uh, than the former. But it, it, it's a great often overlooked story uh, the, the, and, and it will be marked now in, in the week ahead.
0: Um, so put the whole thing into context for us then because 1919 as we know it's a time of a lot of flux in Ireland but it's a time of a lot of flux worldwide it too. It is
1: and Lloyd George you know, the, the Prime Minister has his finger very much on the, on the pulse. He proclaims in the House of Commons he says the whole of Europe is filled with the spirit of revolution There's a deep sense not only of disappointment, but of anger and revolt among the workers uh, against post-war conditions. The whole existing order in its political, social and economic aspect is questioned by the masses of the population from one end of Europe to the other. And he's right. I mean, Europe has just come through a horrific, traumatic conflict. And -hmm. the poor are now asking a very fair question, which is... What's in it for us? What do we get? We want a bigger piece, uh, a bigger slice of, of of the pie. And when World War One is over, there's this great tussle for power across the continent. Mm. You know, barricades go up on the streets of Berlin. People think there's going to be a socialist Germany. Hungary and Slovakia, the left tries to grab power uh, there as well. And there's just this chaos uh, in European politics. But in Ireland, things are always a little bit more civilized, you know. And even though we're going <laughs> we're through, different. we're going we're through a revolution, Europe. we go through a kind of. Conservative revolution, but we still have the establishment of our own renegade parliament. You know, yeah. Dáil Aaron mm. is established in Dublin uh, in January uh, of 1919 and there were some social revolutionaries uh, in its midst. But Lloyd George is right about this. There's a sense that the poor, not only are they angry, but they're capable of potentially taking power. And even De Valera, who's the president of, of, of Dáil Aaron, mm. he says as much. He says, look, the day is coming when Europe might be run by councils of workers, farmers, soldiers and peasants. What, what is a council of workers, farmers, soldiers and peasants, well in Russia they called them Soviets. So it's not that De Valera was endorsing that kind of system far, mm. far from it, but he was conscious that it could happen and it could happen anywhere. And Russia, I mean look at Russia before the Russian Revolution, it's a country that's largely, you know, large chunks of it are illiterate, it's underdeveloped, you know in terms of economics it's the last place anyone
0: thought would have fallen into the hands mm. uh, of the Reds and it's the first place that did. Um, you mentioned that Dev wasn't endorsing the system he was flagging that it could happen but it still sort of seemed unlikely in Ireland because we were a fairly conservative bunch. We were, I say. and
1: that great quip we had it a few weeks ago. Kevin O'Higgins said we're the most conservative people that ever had a revolution. But you know, <laughs> you get you get you know the, the language from people in, in Sinn Fein and in the Dáil at this time. Is, it, 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 it's very conservative. Austin Stack he's the minister for Home Affairs in the Dáil, and he writes this pamphlet called "The Constructive Work of Dáil Éireann." And basically, he says, "Look, the job of the IRA, as I see it." is to stop the country falling into the hands of angry workers and small farmers. And he says while the IRA were establishing their authority as a national police, mm. a grave danger threatened the foundations of the Republic, agrarian agitation for the breaking up of the great grazing ranches into tillage holdings for landless men and uneconomic small holders. There was a moment when it seemed nothing could prevent wholesale <sighs> expropriation. God forbid, you know yeah. and stacking and people like him, they they believe look the job of the doll, the job of the IRA is to get Britain out of Ireland, to establish an Irish Republic and everything else, you know, mass social agitation, that's not our job that's not yeah. the job at hand I,
0: I know we've talked in this slot before actually about the, the democratic programme of the first all. we only talked about it a few months ago actually in mm. the centenary of that and, and the, the, the contrast between the 1919 version of it's okay we, c- we can appropriate your property if we reckon it's for the common good and again you see that mm-hmm. in there where they, they're they petrified of oh my god people are going yeah. to own well, their own land one historian Emmett O'Connor he always says democratic programme was,
1: was neither democratic nor a programme You know, in <laughs> yeah. the sense that they were never going to actually impose the thing yeah. and then when people around
0: the country start saying oh maybe we should impose to the thing, they panic. Yeah, and it, but the point being that it, it's mad to think of the contrast between uh, you know 1921 and Austin Stack is panicking about people owning their own farms, and then 19, <laughs> 1937 where we've got a constitution that says you own all your own stuff and we can't take it. Uh, what kicks all this off then in Limerick specifically?
1: So what I like about this story is it's shaped by very local events and also by very international events and lingo and and influence. Mm. And by April 1919, Ireland is at war. I mean, the War of Independence is underway. And the sentences, the prison sentences, they're just coming down hard on people. So in Limerick there's this very important, very popular local IRA figure called Robert Byrne and he embodies the revolution in a sense in that he's a volunteer, he's a Sinn Féin member and he's a trade union activist. So he ticks all of these different boxes. And while he's held in captivity, he goes on hunger strike, that brings a lot of attention uh, onto him. But there's an attempt by the IRA to break him out so to speak. And in this really frantic firefight, he's wounded and he dies later uh, as a result of his wounds. So he is a couple of things here. He's the first wartime fatality for the Irish volunteers in the the, the conflict and tensions are now kind of running very very high uh, in Limerick and the the funeral is this amazing spectacle where you have hundreds of uniformed Irish volunteers but more importantly you have thousands of mourners and the British authorities are just furious that they attempted to break this man out of prison so they turn his funeral into their own show of strength you have British troops bayonets armoured cars they put aeroplanes Over Limerick, over the hearse. So the sense is, you know, the the British Army are saying to the
0: people of Limerick we're very much at war with you Hmm. and they impose martial law uh, on the city That must have been a really really tense occasion if you have so many uniformed volunteers and then uniformed (laughs) British forces Yeah yeah Uh, that's a real cauldron Um, I I can't imagine then that if the British are proposing to install martial law over Limerick that the locals took to that very kind They
1: didn't and and martial law greatly restricts one your ability to move around your own city but two your ability to get in and out of it Mm. so you have have the the Limerick's Trades Council who, who meets and they just furiously reject the right of the British to do this and they put out a statement saying... The workers of Limerick, assembled in council, hereby declared a stoppage of all work as a protest against the decision of the British government in compelling them to procure permits in order to earn their daily bread. In other words, you know, we are not going to seek permission from you to work in our own city. And 15,000 people immediately rally behind this call. And I think they're reading the contemporary press. They're reading about how this happens in other places. Mm. And they're trying to put that into place in Limerick. So red flags go up. Uh, over the town. And it's the Irish Times in Dublin that are the first people that use this term. They call it uh, a Soviet. Mm. And the Trades Council, in fairness to them, they're just very, very good at getting their argument across. They're never going to have an opportunity like this again, but the global media there and, and listening. And they say, as peaceful workers, We only desire that we should be left alone to exercise the right of free men uh, in their own country. This had never really happened before. There were strikes in Ireland that people called Soviets. Mm. But this is totally different. They even print their own strike notes. Basically, they print currency. They print their own money. Uh, rather than use sterling, and this is
0: all playing out before this great global audience uh, who are all there for the, for the transatlantic air race <laughs> that never gets going. Um, now talk to me about the church because obviously this is still a time in which there's a lot of societal flux, but people are still fairly loyal Roman Catholics. So, where does the yeah, church stand in all there's this? There's a lot
1: of people who have a horse in the race here, you know, and, and the local clergy, for one, people might be surprised to hear this. I Maybe mean, we, we love this idea of the, the big bad church that's always mm. stood against the Irish and people is ruled and, by
0: Rome and all of this at
1: every turn, but actually, yeah, the idea that the church is ruled by. Rome on one fundamental level it is on another level it isn't you know because the parish priest responds to what's happening in the parish mm. and among the people that he knows and on a local level the church are largely kind of supportive of what happens and some priests you know even from neighbouring counties encourage farmers and others to kind of help feed the city of Limerick because there's a real fear that people might might starve and there's this lovely account in the Chicago Tribune where Ruth Russell a, a journalist talks about it. she's there when the bells go and she says the bells of the church toll the Angelus and all the red badge guards rose and blessed themselves <laughs> so that's not happening in Moscow and Petrograd you know that's yeah. very uniquely limerick and Irish and one priest who's interviewed in the press he he has this great line he says I wonder I wonder have the Irish
0: Catholicised communism (laughs) what a lovely line that's a fabulous term of phrase um so then, what what about the the likes of the Labour Party then, who are trying to also be the the formal vehicle through which workers organise themselves and all that? Do they end up getting on board this, of this, or are they a bit more confused? about this it? This is going? a pre Twitter, pre WhatsApp world, and and news travelled slower.
1: And you know, in in Dublin, when they hear that the red flags are up over Limerick, mm. the trade union leaders and the Labour Party kind of think, oh, we we better go down and see see what's <laughs> yeah. going on down here. <laughs> we better co-opt and all of this. The Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which is the largest union in the country, mm. kind of feel, God, maybe maybe we should have some role. Uh, in this dispute and I think one of the issues that's quite remarkable is that the people in Limerick don't really need them you know, they're just so good at playing it themselves John Cronin who's essentially the leader uh, of the Soviet is pumping out a newspaper called the, the, the workers bulletin and it's cocky and they're confident you know it says mm. a new and perfect system perfect it's not perfect there's a no. lot they're struggling to feed themselves at one point but a perfect system of organisation perfect
0: in the North Korean sense <laughs> of being been, perfect <laughs> has
1: been worked out by a clever and gifted mind and ere long we shall show the world what I Irish workers are capable of doing when left to their own resources. So down from Dublin comes Thomas Johnson, who's the, the leader, uh, the secretary yes. of the Irish Labour Party, mm. and the guy who's written the democratic programme. Yes, that we are talking that, about someone yeah. that has called for workers to take what is theirs as he sees it. Mm. But there's a belief then among many people in Limerick that there's just not enough support. Uh, from Dublin, and that the union and the Labour leadership are afraid of what's happening. If they can't control what's happening, yeah.
0: they'll ultimately take a step back. Uh, they don't want a revolution that they can't be at the the vanguard of. Um, so, is that ultimately then what brings about its demise, or, or demise, or how does the whole thing end up collapsing? It went on for two weeks,
1: uh, and sometimes people laugh at this and say, "Oh, the Limerick Soviet lasted two weeks. The 1916 Rising lasted six days." You know, to, yeah. to proclaim <laughs> to proclaim a Soviet and hold out for two weeks in the south of Ireland is is, is remarkable in mm. itself. But what brings about its demise is really curious because it's a reminder that. The There's a lot of different kind of people involved in the revolution. Fonz O'Mara who's the the local mayor but he's also a Sinn Féin man you know. but he's a businessman first and foremost Mm. uh, and a radical secondly. So it's it's a Sinn Féin mayor with the support of the local bishop who wins over to his argument that eventually shuts this thing down and encourages uh, a return to normality.
0: But it suggests uh, this is a little bit of a tangent now but the fact that if he was a mayor who still wielded some amount of clout it means that obviously the Soviet didn't have complete public buy-in because if there was still some recognition for the role of a mayor. Absolutely, yeah, about. absolutely. And they didn't seize businesses and
1: masse or anything like mm-hmm. it, you know. While the word was used, some of its behaviour you know, suggests it wasn't quite as Soviet as such.
0: Sure. Um, there are still, though, ricochets of all of this in, and echoes of it all in yeah, the it, weeks and months after. Limerick in particular
1: becomes this great bastion of radicalism. And then on May Day, you know, which is only weeks after this, mm. you get thousands of people parading behind red flags again, and the volunteers are out in uniform. And then there's occupations and creameries in Limerick the following month, and this great slogan appears on one of them. Knock long Soviet creamery. We make butter, not profits. But then <laughs> across Munster, other people say, Right, if they can do it there, we can do it. Mm. So you get this amazing front page of The Guardian in nineteen twenty. Soviet government in Waterford. You know, well, there's similar action there. So this is kind of People look at this and they'd say, oh, we can do this. Mm. And I think what happens is it actually just becomes a strike tactic. If you want an, a, an increase in wages, mm. take over the factory or the creamery, put a red flag over it. The boss will arrive, say what you want, pay increase, mm. and he'll give it to you to get his property back. That's and, not a and, then you and then you become
0: desovietised. And
1: then you become de and you go back to work. But the IRA had no great desire to see these kind of things happen. And I mean, on more than one occasion, our Minister for Labour, Countess Markovic. Actually threatens to use the IRA mm. to put down uh, worker Soviets if, if they don't accept arbitration outcomes. Mm. So the what, minister for labour, minister of for all La- and of all the radicals in Irish history, Markovic. Yeah, you know. So I think what that says is there was something else going on in this country at this time. There wasn't just this question of nationalism. You know, there was a kind of popular unrest mm. among people and it was in us and it was right across the continent of Europe and
0: it's it's something to remember. Um, so all this uh, now a 100 years ago this month and all been commemorated this month in Limerick. It is
1: and a, a brilliant book by Liam Cahill uh, Forgotten Revolution about the Limerick Soviets it's been reprinted for the for the centenary well worth reading.
0: Great stuff. Uh, fascinating as ever Donald. Thanks a million. Donald Fallon is the author of the Community Blog and Books and not only is he getting a plug for the book volume 2 of which is in all good bookshops now. Uh, he is also at the moment and he did not ask me to say this. <laughs> But he's curating an exhibition of uh, what's currently on show at the Dublin City Library on Pierce Street. It's part of the One City, One Book initiative. Uh, Donald has curated an exhibition on banned books and evil literature. Dirty books, dirty magazines,
1: Brendan B and Edna O'Brien and the like, all there.
0: Uh, and as you said yourself on Twitter during the week, it's rare that your first exhibit also guarantees you uh, one-way passage to hell. So, uh, <laughs> hope it goes well at least anyway that you enjoyed this little bit you're getting out of it.